Hey everyone, and welcome to Expert Opinions, a new podcast from the Harriman Institute at Columbia University, a leading global institution for the study of Russia, Eurasia, and Eastern Europe. I'm your host, Masha Udenseva-Brenner. Before I introduce our guests and topics for this episode, I'd like to thank Eurasianet.org for their generous support, which has made this episode possible. And to note that the opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of the Harriman Institute or Eurasianet. In today's episode, we'll discuss the recent abductions of gay men in Chechnya, the political context in which these abductions occurred, and the relationship between the Chechen Republic and the Russian Federation at large. Thanks for tuning in. All eyes turned to Chechnya in early April, after the independent Russian newspaper Nova Gazeta exposed the kidnapping, unlawful detention, and torture of more than 100 gay men by the Chechen authorities. There has been extensive coverage of the purges in the international media, but I wanted to go beyond it to explore some of the misconceptions we might be hearing. To get a better sense of the situation, I sat down with our alumna, Rachel Denver, Deputy Director of the Europe and Central Asia Division at Human Rights Watch. I think one of the big misconceptions is that the horrible violence and completely unlawful uh, roundups that we're seeing in Chechen today are somehow something new. Uh, that it's something unprecedented. It is absolutely not new. It is absolutely not unprecedented. What's unprecedented is that these methods, these uh, these roundups, these forced disappearances, this torture, threats, you know, against gay men and their families. What's new is that it's targeted mm-hmm. gay men. What's not new are the methods themselves. That is not unprecedented. Those. Those kinds of methods, you know, that, that, that kind of violence, brutal, unlawful violence, has been the signature of Kadyrov's, really the hallmark of Kadyrov's tyranny that he has built in Chechnya. Ever the, since he's oh, come to power. Over, yes, oh, in, in his decade in, in power. His father was president of Chechnya in 2004, and he was uh, assassinated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, at the time, Kadyrov was too young to become president. He was How old tw- was he? He was 27. And um, he, you, know, you couldn't be leader of Chechnya under law at the time until you were 30. So he, he, he was appointed like deputy, I think deputy prime minister in charge of like security services or something. And he gradually muscled everybody else out. And when he turned 30, he muscled out the, the person who was president at the time, muscled him out, got himself appointed by Putin, and he's basically Putin's uh, protege. And he, he has a real tyranny inside Chechnya. Uh, what's law, you know, the, the law of the land is Kadyrov's law, not, not, uh, not law of the Russian Federation. If, if Russian Federation law happens to coincide with what Kadyrov thinks is right, well, that's just grand. If not... Technically, Chechnya is a federal republic of Russia that has to abide by the laws of the Russian Federation. But Kadyrov has been able to rule with complete impunity there. His strategy is all about maintaining control. On the one hand, he has imposed strict Islamic codes on his citizens, mandating women to wear headscarves, limiting the sale of alcohol to certain hours. On the other, he's launched a brutal war on anyone suspected of belonging to the Islamist insurgency. In Kadyrov's Chechnya, It is not only proven insurgents who are punished, but also suspected insurgents, the relatives of both proven and suspected insurgents. People are killed, their houses burned down, they're left homeless, ostracized from their communities. Does the Kremlin have any control over what happens there? Um, Well, yes and no. In terms of human rights violations, the Kremlin has pretty much uh, given 
Kidira free reign to do to perpetrate whatever violations he wants in order to keep the insurgency, the the armed insurgency in Chechnya at bay. That seems to have been the the quid pro quo. You know, um, he, the Kremlin gives him carte blanche to use whatever methods he needs to stop the insurgency, to stop the Islamist insurgency, to keep it at bay, to keep to keep the republic uh, stable. That has cost uh, a lot of people a lot of suffering, a lot of people who have nothing to do with the insurgency. It's come at the cost of the rule of law in, in Chechnya. So, um, you know, these methods that we've seen being used against uh, gay men in Chechnya, these methods like, just let's just call it what it is, kidnapping, uh, forced disappearances, holding people in places that, are, that aren't prisons, that aren't jails, they're just, you know, abandoned police bases or, or whatever, uh, torturing them, you know, through beatings and, and shocker, you know, electric shocker, mm-hmm. um, threatening their families, public humiliate, forced humil- humiliation, things like that. Those tactics are nothing new, right? Yeah. So we've seen, we've seen uh, Kadyrov and his uh, underlings, his, his security forces that are answerable only to him, we've seen them use those brutal, unlawful methods against suspected insurgents, families of family members of suspected insurgents, people who are suspected of collaborating with the with uh, armed insurgencies. Um, th- th- those were the initial targets of these methods in um, you know in the in the earlier years. And then we saw him use these you know use these same methods against other groups who either question his authority or who somehow don't fit the model of the good Chechen, who don't conform. What do you mean by the good Chechen? Well, I mean, people who, for example, people who use drugs mm-hmm. or people who might be drunk drivers. Um, they'll find themselves kidnapped, you know, pressure on their families. Um, they'll find themselves tortured to, uh, to cough up information about other, for example, drug users. So denunciations play a role. Denunciations. Um, so it's not surprising that they that if the security if the law enforcement and security officials in Chechnya know that they can use these methods and get away with them it's not surprising that they would use them against uh you know against this group as well against gay men and why are gay men so threatening to the Kadyrov administration well i think the question to ask is why did they decide to do this at all how did this happen how did yeah. this start and i mean it's important to point out that yes uh, chechnya is a very traditional society and societal attitudes and ho- well, societal attitudes are can be very, very uh, homophobic. And for for years, police in Chechnya have taken advantage of those attitudes and taken advantage of the stigma, the family stigma that's attached to homopho- that, that's attached to ho- homosexuality. And that comes from the Islamic culture. Or? It comes from Islamic. It comes from Chechen traditions, right? So there's, you know, family honor is taken very, very seriously. And if there's a, if there's something that's considered to be a stain on family honor, like a woman who's perceived to not conform <laughs> to uh, traditional ideas of, about female sexuality or judged to be so quote-unquote loose women or if they're sleeping, you know, having affairs, they could be, tar- you know, honor killings are not unknown in Chechnya. Honor killings for, you know, the, the, the family is expected to conduct an honor killing in order to cleanse the family in order to make it possible for other, you know, family members to get married in in good... Just to give you a bit of context, not only are honor killings not unknown, but they threaten even those Chechens who have immigrated to seemingly faraway places. 
The Riga-based Russian-language news website Medusa recently reported on an anonymous Chechen armed gang that goes around Berlin, where there's a large Chechen community, seeks out immoral behavior in fellow Chechens, attacks them, and threatens them with death. This is why even those gay men who have managed to escape Chechnya continue to fear for their lives. So the, and the perception is that, you know, having a gay family member or, or a family member who's, you know, a woman who is, has, has had an affair, um, that, that that harms the family's reputation. And family reputation is primary um, in Chechen culture. So, and your own personal honor is primary. So the authorities uh, use that. Or in the past, the authorities, the, the police have used that um, as a way of, of, of blackmailing men who they thought you know, might be gay. So they would kidnap them, hold them in custody, you know, force them to pay a ransom. Uh, but most and this was even personal before gay. this oh, crisis. Oh, this is way before this crisis. Um, I think this is probably fairly routine. The police would use that and use the public, st- public stigma and the knowledge about you know, how family honor works to blackmail and get a ransom out of uh, these men who they kidnap. But there wasn't this kind of organized violence. We can't pin the pur- these purges, these violent, brutal, organized purges on Chechen attitudes or Chechen culture. It's got nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. It's got to do with two things. First, the fact that these methods have become ingrained by impunity on law enforcement and security forces who are you know, under the de facto leadership of Kadyrov. So you have ingrained methods, mm-hmm. and you have total impunity. So uh, that's why this purge is happening. The original Nova Gazeta article uncovering the abductions was called Honor Killing, How the Ambitions of a Famous LGBT Activist Reawaken the Terrifying Ancient Practice. The activist in question is Nikolai Alexeyev, leader of the group GayRussia.ru. The article stated that the group's March 9 application for permits to stage LGBT pride parades in four cities in the North Caucasus, none of which were located in Chechnya, by the way, had triggered the purges. Though the newspaper went on to amend this theory the following day, this became a prevailing media narrative. The truth is that while the permit applications did lead to anti-gay protests and aggression in the region, and likely aggravated the situation in Chechnya, the purges had been going on already and started for another reason altogether. So what? Ha- so how does this purge start? So sometime in the end of February, uh, a guy was abducted, uh, and they the police went through his mobile apps. This is what they've been trained to do now, and they found an image of him, intimate images of him, either with another man or implicating another man. The, the intimate images. Phone, and he was abducted images. for another reason. Yeah. initially. Yeah. This was, was in a abducted. town called Argoon about 10 miles outside of Grozny. The police had abducted the man because he appeared to be on drugs. It turned out he had taken some sort of opiate. They detained him and went through his mobile apps. WhatsApp, Signal, whatever. There, they found messages and photos that gave away his sexuality. So they tortured and interrogated him, and based on the information he provided, along with the information on his phone, they got the names of more gay men. So all these guys, uh, you know, they decide to go after the next guy, and then, and then, and then it snowballs. According to a Human Rights Watch report that came out shortly after I spoke with Rachel, the police, after obtaining the initial batch of gay contacts, 
went to their superiors and got permission to start a mass purge. Then they began kidnapping people from their homes, workplaces, etc., and, without due process, taking them to makeshift detention facilities where they tortured and interrogated them and got more names. Eventually, they released some men and brought others back to their families, forcing them to shame themselves and come out publicly in front of male relatives. A common tactic was to disgrace the relatives and then urge them to shame and or kill the gay man in question. Some men were fortunate enough to be released without family shaming and to escape the country. Others got word that their name was now on a list and left Chechnya before the police had the chance to detain them. This prompted authorities to threaten the family members left behind, ordering them to bring the gay men back to Chechnya or else. Human Rights Watch has gone in and confirmed Nova Gazeta's reporting. How did you guys do that? We interviewed victims of the purge. Who were in Russia? Who were not in Chechnya. Can you tell me a little bit about what they told you? These are heartbreaking interviews. These are people who were trapped, right? They're no longer in Chechnya, but as one man said, uh, he's terrified of both being hunted down by Kadyrov security forces, who know who he is, um, and by his own family, who want to kill him. So what happened after the story broke? How did the government of the Russian Federation respond to the unlawful abductions, torture, and even killings carried out by government officials on its own territory? The Kremlin's response was first to be very skeptical, Mm -hmm. demonstratively skeptical. Um, But you also saw Putin sit down with Kadyrov when when the international outcry had gotten very sharp. You saw him sitting down with Kadyrov in the Kremlin, which doesn't happen very often. And they were, talked, they were talking about, you know, economic issues, who knows what. And then suddenly in the middle of it, Kadyrov goes on, a, uh, he goes on, on kind of a rant about some unfounded accusations about detentions in our republic, and that's all lies. And, and that's, all that you, that's all you see. So you know that the, the issue was brought up. And Putin is silent. But Putin, I mean, you have to realize he would, he would never, you know, say anything too public. He would never condemn Kadyrov on camera. He would never do anything, especially not on this kind of issue. But the, I, think that, I think it's significant that the very fact that he, it seemed to me at least that he was, that it wasn't by coincidence that Kadyrov happened to be in, in Moscow at that time, because this was, this was right after the huge scandal over Nova Gazeta being threatened. Right. Just to clarify, for those of you who haven't been following the story closely, Shortly after Nova Gazeta published the article about the purges, the newspaper received a wave of threats. Elena Malashina, the journalist who broke the story, explained in an interview with the Washington Post that 15,000 people got together in the main mosque of Chechnya and announced a jihad against the staff of Nova Gazeta. Malashina felt so threatened that she wrapped up her work in Russia and left the country until things calmed down. The Kremlin did make clear that the threats against Nova Gazeta were intolerable, which Denver says is a somewhat unprecedented step. But Kadyrov himself has not been reprimanded by the Kremlin. Putin is never going to forsake Kadyrov publicly until they're ready to give up on him entirely. And Even, why don't they give up on him? Uh, that's not a question I can even answer. I mean, yeah. I think that he's, it's the Frankenstein that they've created. A huge thanks to Rachel for providing us with that insightful overview. If you want to know more, read Human Rights Watch's in-depth report on the purges and the political situation in Chechnya.
You can find the report on their website, hrw.org. To get a true understanding of Chechnya and what's happening there now, it's important to understand Chechnya's relationship with Russia and the two conflicts that have decimated and demoralized the republic. For the nitty-gritty of how it really started, I highly recommend reading the book Chechnya, Calamity in the Caucasus. The work is a profound investigation into the First Chechen War, written by journalist Carlota Gall and Thomas DeWall. Gall and DeWall not only covered the conflict from start to finish, but they also went backward, using eyewitness testimony to explore the evolution of the historical and cultural relationship between Russia and Chechnya, and how this relationship facilitated the conflict. The Harriman Institute is extremely fortunate because DeWall, who's currently a senior fellow at Carnegie Europe, has donated to us all of his interview tapes, not only from this book, but also from his book Black Garden, which is the only work to date that examines the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan from both sides. I sat down with DeWall to discuss both books, and I'll play a portion of our interview on Chechnya here. Hi, Tom. Great to have you with us today. Can you tell me a bit about the interviews and why you decided to donate them to Columbia? Well, um, basically in my attic there were these uh, boxes of uh, cassette tapes um, which tells you how old they are. They, they date from the, uh, the mid-1990s when that, that was the preferred method of, of doing an interview. And I was been lugging them around in various house moves um, and you know, various members of my family grumbling a bit about them. But it seemed to me that this was an important collection of tapes, um, interviews that I'd done for two books, one on, on the war in Chechnya of, of the mid-1990s and one about the uh, Karabakh war um, of the early 1990s, although, in fact, that book was written a bit later. But a, um, a collection of interviews I'd done with some very important people, starting you know, with presidents of Armenia and Azerbaijan, um, leading people in the Kremlin, um, down to commanders, veterans, all sorts of people who'd had an important story to tell. Uh, and when you write a book, maybe 5% at best of an interview gets into the book. You just pick a few nice quotes. But it seemed to me this was valuable material. Um, the written archival sources on these conflicts are quite poor. We may get access to them in a few years, but um, we may never get access, proper access to them. Um, these were eyewitnesses, um, and there are all the, the caveats about eyewitnesses that they may be a, misremember things and may a bit, be a bit unreliable, but certainly they tell a compelling story, and each of them saw important things and has, and, and many of them were important players. Um, and many of them, I should, should add, have of the interviews have actually died. Um, you know, Russians of a certain age, um, Russian, <laughs> uh, Russian men of a certain age tend to die in their 60s, uh, a lot of the Chechens died in the conflict, and and certainly, and some of the Armenians and Azerbaijanis I interviewed have died as well. So, to cut a long story short, this seemed to me a valuable resource that was just sitting in a box, and it was in fact um, first to you, Masha, that I <laughs> I, I mentioned this yes. uh, several years ago, um, and um, and thanks to you that, that that you've helped see through that this whole collection has been. Uh, copied, digitized, and now transcribed, and is available for people to listen to. Sort of, sort of, hundred plus uh, interviews of kind of living history of that period. Well, we're very happy to have them. Um, 
So the events leading up to the first invasion of Chechnya were chaotic and unpredictable. Can you tell us a bit about what was going on in the Kremlin during that time and which of the key figures our listeners will encounter in your interview collection? Sure. Well, um, I co-wrote that book with uh, Carlos Agul, who um, went on to have a distinguished uh, career with the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And the division of labor in the book was that she basically wrote about the the conflict itself. She Mm -hmm. was the kind of brave war reporter. I, I tended to write more about... Um, the politics of it, whether in in Chechnya or in in Russia. Um, So I spent a lot of time working out how this conflict broke out, why Boris Yeltsin suddenly, after three years of dealing with this kind of weird um, self-declared independent Chechnya, suddenly in 1994 sent in the troops to, to crush this Chechen regime with completely disastrous results and resulting in, in, in a war. Why did this happen? Um, and people had speculated that it was about Chechen oil, that it was about um, many, many reasons, that it was a fear of a kind of domino effect of, of Russian republics wanting to declare independence. None of that really made any sense to me. And so I, I had a, did a number of interviews of people involved with in that process. So I had um, people like um, Yuri Kolmikov, who was a... Um, Minister of Justice who was in the Security Council meeting in the Kremlin where they made the decision and he was the only one to speak out against. Um, there was Sergei Shakhrai who was a key Yeltsin official who was one of the people um, in favour. Um, there was um, some people in the Kremlin, I think Mark Ordnov, Emil Payin who were involved. And so I, I got a, a Sergei Yushinkov who was a, who was an independent parliamentarian who was, who was later assassinated sadly. So I, I got a very um, good collection of, of interviews and, and very much forms the impression that, that the decision to invade was made really not much to do with Chechnya but to do with internal Kremlin politics, that this group had gained the upper hand in Yeltsin's Kremlin who wanted to kind of rebrand Yeltsin as a tougher, more nationalist uh, war president. Um, and bizarrely uh, and disastrously in my view, they'd latched on to the idea that um, Bill Clinton's recent military intervention in Haiti had, had boosted Clinton and that they could do the same thing in Chechnya. Um, and Kalmykov, um had said this, was, this comparison actually came up in the, in the Kremlin uh, meeting um, and that he had vainly tried to say the Caucasus is not Haiti, you, you can't just, you know, it, a quick intervention there won't work. The Caucasus, you know, has... Uh, centuries of conflict and you're, you're treading on very dangerous ground. But Yeltsin was clearly persuaded. So from this uh, attempt to kind of basically use diplomacy or kind of just play for time in Chechnya, uh, this decision was decision was made in first in November 1994 to try and use a special forces operation in Chechnya. When that failed, in humiliating fashion, um, that was defeated. The decision was made to send in the army um, to absolutely catastrophic results. First of all, um, an attempt at a kind of a, a, a tank attack on on city of Grozny, um, where which was again very bloodily defeated by the Chechens, and then using um, uh, basically the Russian air force to bomb uh, a Russian city. And I think anyone who remembers that conflict just remembers these horrible images of the of the Russian Air Force 
bombing the city of Grozny without um, declaring a state of emergency yeah, or anything. Yeah, um, and 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 really everything that's happened in Chechnya stems from those from those events at the end of ninety four, beginning of ninety five, and you could argue um, actually Russian politics was changed irrevocably from that moment that Yeltsin was drawn into this bloody conflict, and um, even though it was then a, a kind of truce was declared in in 96 uh, the problem wasn't solved and then putin uh, rose to the kremlin rose to the presidency on the back of chechnya in 99 um so i i think you could say that the kind of the chechen war imprisoned russia uh in a very negative way um someone said rather rather kind of trenchantly that this this war was supposed to prove that uh Chechnya was part of Russia and, ended, and Russia ended up being part of Chechnya. The Thomas DeWall Interviews Collection will be available at Columbia Libraries starting in July and will provide the amazing opportunity for scholars and journalists to hear hours and hours of eyewitness testimony from two of the most complicated conflicts to have plagued the post-Soviet region. I want to thank Tom once more for donating these interviews and for spending so much of his time talking to me about the two conflicts. If this clip has whet your appetite, you should check out my in-depth interviews with him about both books. They'll appear as a two-part series in the fall 2017 and spring 2018 issues of Harriman Magazine. And this wraps up the second episode of Expert Opinions. Thanks so much for listening in. And we'd love to hear your feedback. You can email Eurasianet or tweet me your thoughts at Masha U. Brenner. This episode was written by me and produced by me and Rebecca Foley. License-free music was provided by Shutterstock.com.